Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get in groups of about five or six. Look at all that movement. Not a single person moved. Five or six. You're not going to be there all night, but I have something I want you to do at the very beginning, all right? So grab some people you like or think you ought to like or don't like or five or six. All right, here's what I want you to do. You got your groups? Maybe. Okay, I want you in your groups to, to, for a moment to think of this, and then you're going to share this with everyone in your group. Five words that tell what makes you, you. Five words that tells the people in your group what makes you, you. Every, yes, each one of you. You sounded like my kids with homework now, Miss Ann. Any morning. I don't want to come up with five words. <laughs> All right, so take a minute, get it. You can write it down, or if you're one of these that just has it in your head, think through it. And then when everybody, wait till everybody's ready. Don't start selling your, telling yours to get it over with and everybody else is writing stuff down. All right? Wait till everybody's done and then take a moment to share it. Five words. We're going to have time for sharing with everybody. Oh, to each other, figuring it out? Yeah. Y'all don't realize that some of them are, uh, some of this was for marital counseling for couples there to help one another out. All right, you should at least have, be ready to start sharing in the next minute, all right? This isn't a 45-minute project here. All right, so when you're ready, y'all start sharing, okay? All right. Everybody done? If you're not done, you probably don't want to share. So you're like, yeah, we're done. All right. Anybody want to share one or two of theirs? Apparently, Brian Hawkins is going to share with us. Is that what I just heard? No. Number two. Smart. Huh? You've got to have a little confidence, right? Anybody have somebody... Share something from your group that you thought was dead on. That's them. Right. What did, what did, Teresa, so what did she say that was dead on? There you go. There, there we go. That's good. Carol's was right on the money. Is that what you're saying, Charlie? What are yours, Carol? It's here. Is Kitchen Nazi on there? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's our affectionate term, right? Well, I, I will not take it the wrong way. Is it about me? Okay, good. <laughs> no, you're talented. It's okay. There you go. There you go. That's just Mr. Robert. All right. Anybody else have somebody share one that's dead on to who they are? Now, I saw up here that there was a community project for Mr. John, right? Y'all were working on Mr. John's together. You... And you had one cliff for him? Yeah. Pilot. It's been a while since you flew a plane, hadn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Put over there. So he was supposed to pilot over there, right? Not in a plane. So, so yeah. Somebody pointed at Kathy's Acola. Is that what I saw? 
Y'all had the same thing. Yeah, so we've discovered that Kathy Zakola and Betty Hull are identical. There you go. Optimist. Was that easy or difficult? How many of you thought it was easy? How many of you thought it was difficult? All right, those of you that thought it was difficult, why? Was it the lack of words or was it the num was it too too many words or not enough words? You're like, I don't want to talk about it. It was difficult. I don't, don't ask me that question. Pressure to pick the right words, right? It's the thing, that, Carol, we don't talk about ourselves like that. We don't come up with. And so, and sometimes when somebody says, give words to describe yourself, the, there are negative thoughts that you don't want to say in front of everybody, but you immediately think, well, I'm not that. or, But you're not going to say that. But then you're not going to be, well, I am, well, maybe Brian's going to be. I'm smart, but you know, you're not going to really brag either. And so you have to you have to navigate that middle ground, right? And here's why. Here's the reason we we did that. Here's what we're talking about tonight. We're going to talk about keeping your heart with all vigilance. Okay, and that comes from Proverbs chapter four, verse twenty-three. And you can be turning over there. We're going to be camped out there. And this is what it says. It says, "Keep your heart with all vigilance." For from it flow the springs of life. Now, different translations use a different word for keep. I mean, some use watch over, some use guard. But the idea behind it is this protecting, guarding, caring for your heart. So tonight, I want to mainly talk about that. Now, when we talk about your heart in American culture today, we think mostly of our emotional affections, our feelings, right? But in the Bible, it's Proverbs 4.23 if you're still looking, right? In the Bible, heart means something more than emotions, affections, and feelings. In fact, uh, one scholar has said, it includes all your deepest moral and spiritual convictions along with your feelings and emotions and especially your deepest moral and spiritual convictions in relationship to God. So your heart is talking about what's deep inside of you or what makes you, you and who you are. The verse says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Now, it's important always when you look at Scripture to remember what it's in, okay? And so the book of Proverbs, what is the book of Proverbs? It's wisdom literature, okay? That means a couple of things. First of all, the book of Proverbs is like the original Twitter. Twitter is this social network that people write things on and they can only write 140 characters. Well, Proverbs are little short sayings that stick, right? And so there are a lot of you that could quote some Proverbs and could think through some. You might not know where they are in the book, but you've heard them. We have even American Proverbs, okay? An apple a day. Keeps the doctor away. A stitch in time saves nine, right? You, you could come up with these different old little Proverbs, and the Scripture has a lot of them. But Proverbs chapter 4 is a specific section of Proverbs. We're in the first verse of chapter 4. This guy, dad says, okay, my sons, here are some instructions. These are the important things I want you to be aware of. And so this is a father saying to the son, this is how life works. 
After living a lot of years, I want to tell you something. What's really important in life is to keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. We've all lived long enough to know people that started well and finished well. People who rise in their lives, great families, good kids, involved in doing the work of the Lord until the day that they go on to their eternal reward. But we've also seen the opposite, right? People that seem to start out really well, things are going really well for them, and then they're lives are destroyed, their marriages are destroyed, their families are destroyed, churches are destroyed. What God is saying here in Proverbs 4 through this author is that a lot of that is determined, the course of our life, the course of our service, the course of our ministry for the Lord is determined from our heart, from the depths of who we are. So here's what I want to talk about real quickly tonight. Three things. What it is to keep your heart. What does it mean? Why we need to and how to. All right? So what does it mean to keep your heart with vigilance? That's a hard word to say. Many times I'm going to say vigilance. All right? If I say vigilance, let's just agree you know what I mean. All right? Literally, the Hebrew text says... More than all vigilance or more than all guarding or more than all protecting. So let me ask you this question, okay? What in your life do you protect? What in your life do you guard? Anybody lock your car when you park it somewhere? Why do you lock your car when you park it somewhere? So it'll be there when you get back, right? Maybe. Anybody lock your house when you leave? Anybody here have a security system on their house? Right? Why do you have that? To protect what's there, right? What else in your life do you guard? You tell me. What are some things you guard? Your family? Money? I mean, we got all kinds of ways to do that, right? Safe deposit box and savings accounts and mutual funds. and What do you guard? Here's the thing that's interesting, okay? And we're going to talk about guarding our heart in a minute. We live in a society where more is known about you than has ever been known. Whether you like it or not, they know. The all-seeing eye of whoever knows, right? But we take precautions all around us to guard things. The Lord says, above all of that, Above everything in your life that you think about protecting, protect your heart. If you're married, you've got kids, you've got grandkids, you want to protect your marriage, you want to safeguard it, you want to protect your kids and look after them, your grandchildren and look after them. You want to protect them and that's important. But the verse says more than that. More than guarding, more than protecting, keep your heart. So right off the bat, there's this challenge that we are to make the condition of our heart more important than other concerns. In practical terms, what that means is from time to time, you might have to give less attention to other good things. Job, exercise, church meetings, car repair, house repair, scheduling, in order to guard your heart. 
you can neglect some things in your life, but the proverb writer says, don't ever neglect your heart. Now remember, again, when I say heart, some of you are thinking immediately of that muscle in your chest. Some of you are thinking of your emotional state. That's not what it means here. It means the deepest part of who we are, what makes us us, our relationship to the Lord and His influence in our lives. And there's something in the word keep it or guard it or watch over it. It implies that it's something worth watching. It's something worth guarding. Have you ever noticed that the most valuable things have the biggest protection? Who's the most protected person in our country? The president. We don't even have to think about it. It's the president. He's got, he's got an entire agency that their primary goal is to protect him, right? If you go to a museum, aren't the most valuable things going to be the things most guarded, most protected? Well, there is this understanding that it is telling us that our hearts are valuable. And that some of you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. I've read the Old Testament. And I know that Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Right? In fact, Jeremiah 17, 9, there it is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? But here's the thing about Jeremiah that's kind of interesting. If you read a little bit later in Jeremiah, he predicts something coming. In fact, I talk about it almost every time we have the Lord's Supper. Because Jeremiah says there's a new covenant coming. And the whole truth about our hearts comes out in the midst of that. Because it is worth protecting. It is worth guarding. The New Testament tells us that when Jesus Christ captures our lives, He changes our hearts. Look at some of these verses. This is Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our, where is it? Hearts. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 6, 17, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near to God with a true heart. Here's what I want you to understand, okay? Several places in the New Testament, it speaks fondly of our heart, positively about our heart. We've been born again, we've trusted in the Savior, there's goodness there, there's Something to protect there. But the New Testament reminds us that's not the whole story. In fact, the brother of Jesus, James, reminds us that just because our hearts have been changed doesn't mean they can't go back. James 3.14 says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. James 4.8 says, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So the New Testament gives this picture that Jesus comes in and He changes us internally, who we are. But we have this tendency, if we're not vigilant in watching, to drift back towards something else. In England, in the 1600s, there was a Puritan writer named John Flavel. And he wrote about this verse. In fact, he wrote 100 pages about this verse. 
because that's what Puritans did. They wrote and they wrote and they wrote. Now, I haven't read all 100 pages. I read a little bit of a summary. But here's what he said. He said that our hearts are like a musical instrument. You tune it, you get it just right, and then you hang it on the wall for a few days, and guess what? It goes out of tune. Now, I don't know a whole lot about tuning an instrument, but I know that we tune this piano, and within a few days, it's just a little bit off. And the longer it sits, the longer it's out of tune. Or you tune it, he says, and something bumps and it's out of tune again. And he said, our hearts can be like that. Be right with God. Something disrupts them. They neglect. We neglect them. And they begin to stray. Now, my guess is, if we could be honest in this room tonight, that we all could give instances in our lives when we got right with God and we're moving where He wanted us to move, doing what He wanted us to do, and then just a little bit of neglect got in there and we saw ourselves drifting away. When I was in high school and college, we called it the youth camp syndrome. You go to youth camp, you get fired up for God, everything's great, I'm coming back, I'm sharing Christ with all 400 friends in high school, I'm standing up at the first assembly, and by the first assembly, you've just kind of drifted. So you get to fall retreat, then you have big fall retreat, and then you drift. Now, part of what I think happens in our lives as we grow older is we don't even have those kind of events anymore, and so we don't even have that kind of kickstart. And so we just drift. I read this week about a, a guy that I respect a lot, a guy named Wayne Grudem. And he uh, is a great theologian, writes r- really good theology. In fact, he's written kind of a modern systematic theology that a lot of people use. And he was on a translation committee. And he said that they would, part of this translation committee is, he would go every day from 9 o'clock to 4 o'clock. And all he did was sit in a room and translate the Bible with a committee. And he said it was, you say, well, that doesn't sound like a big deal. He says it, was, it wasn't long hours, but he said it was intense. He said because we would sit there and debate one verse for three or four hours, and if you stepped out of the room because you got a phone call or you had to step out of the room, and they voted while you were gone, you might lose, and it was done. It's in the Bible. There's a lot of pressure there. He said the thing is that he found himself getting exhausted with all that work and they would, go, they would go at night and the people that were publishing the Bible put them in this nice hotel and gave them a great breakfast and supper every night. And he said the problem was it was this really fancy hotel and they could not do supper in less than two and a half hours. It was always four courses, great food, he said. But by the time you got done, we walked 30 minutes back, you'd be there at 5, you're out there till 7.30 or 8, you got to get up the next morning to go sit in the room. He said, I wanted to get back and do emails. I wanted to talk to my wife who was in America. And he said, all this would happen. He said, I found myself getting more and more tired, more and more tired. And he said, all of a sudden I thought, I could just get up 30 minutes later. And he said, now the 30 minutes I gave up, and you can imagine, was my time alone with the Lord. He said, but this is what I thought. I'm sitting in a room analyzing the Bible for seven hours a day. That probably qualifies as an okay quiet time. So he quit. And he said, 
About a week later, his wife said, what is going on with you? You're just not right. You're upset all the time. You're, you, you, you're a little short with everything. Three days, four days, he said he had done it. He said he wrote himself this note when he realized what it was from. He said, results of missing my time with the Lord, of just wandering a little bit. Pride, talking more about myself, inwardly hoping people will praise me, lack of love for friends, irritability, relationship with friends stall or put on hold, general inward feeling of unease, unsettledness, hard to concentrate on Scripture and prayer, self-reliance, and no peace. He said, I never imagined that while translating a Bible that people would use to connect with God by the millions that I would experience my own drifting away. We so easily stray. What does it mean to keep our hearts? It means to guard it above all things. It's paying attention to what's going on in the deepest core of what's inside of you. Now, here's why. We're supposed to do that. Proverbs 4, 23 tells us, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, it's not the easiest phrase to get here, but it says, From it are the outflowings, the outgoings of life. It's what everything comes out of. The, the picture is that your heart is like a stream of water that's continually flowing out to touch and impact people in whom in which you come in contact with. So this picture is whatever is in deep inside of you, whatever in your heart, whatever down there, it's just going to naturally flow out of you. It's going to impact the people around you. Jesus, I think, had this verse in mind in Luke six forty five when he says, "The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person." Out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Someone cuts you off in traffic. What comes out comes from the flow of your heart. The day doesn't go exactly like you want it to go. What comes out comes out of the flow of your heart. Jesus, I think, had this in mind in Mark seven twenty one. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. I saw a, a pastor did a series of messages one time called It Comes From Within. And it looked like one of those old horror movies. And it was about the depth in our souls that just flows when we're disconnected from God. It gives us an indication of why people do what they do. It flows out of their heart. The reason the Bible tells us to keep our hearts more than all vigilance, above all guarding, above everything else, is because every time we encounter a new situation, out of your heart come the outgoings of life. We all have responsibilities here. Responsibilities at home, responsibilities at work, responsibilities in social organizations, responsibilities at church. And all those responsibilities, if your life is full of self and pride, and your interpretation of the Bible could be perfect, your doctrine could be, sign, could be fine, but out of your life are going to come selfishness and pride. It's like a virus. You don't see it, but it affects everybody. 
Y'all know what a virus is, right? If y'all would like to be introduced to viruses, we usually have a couple in our house somewhere. You have six people in a house, guess what you got? You got viruses occasionally, right? They just pass. You don't necessarily see it. No, if we could see the virus, it would be okay. You don't see it. A lot of times you don't even know when you've got it. You know, when one of our kids comes down, sometimes we'll get online to see, okay, how long is it contagious? And one of those things that always makes you a little upset is it's, you're contagious 24 hours before you show symptoms. Well, that's not helpful at all, right? What happens when our heart is selfish and proud and focused inwardly is it begins to flow out and infect others around you. If your heart is full of fear, it's going to impact the people around you to be fearful. If your heart is full of love for Jesus and faith in Him, then the love and faith in Him will carry you around to the others around you. You'll speak about it. You'll talk about it. You'll exhibit it to people around you. I think this verse, as simple as it is, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it the springs of life flow. Give us an insight into why people, churches, denominations, seminaries, other places stray away from faithfulness to the Bible and the faithfulness to its teaching. It's because their hearts start to grow cold toward God. In fact, there was a, a, a professor at Princeton, back when Princeton used to be a training ground for preachers, back in the 1800s, named Charles Hodge. He taught there for 58 years. A long time to teach. It's a long time to do anything, but it's a long time to teach. While he was there, Princeton was very conservative. It was very in line with the scriptures and God's word. And they began to hear about all this stuff happening in Germany. And in Germany, people were beginning to doubt the word of God. And they were walking away from the faith. And he said, how can that be? That's, that's where Martin Luther heard the word from the Lord and posted the 95 things on the church door and started a revolution. How can it be that they're walking away? So he went and investigated it. 1828, he'd been there two years. He came back and he said, Here's what I think. They forgot to guard their heart. And it has led them away. We see it in Scripture. We're reading through the Bible some with Eli and Luke at night. And we've just started in Genesis. And Luke just said yesterday, Dad, I sure wish sin had never entered the world. I said, well, Luke, I do too. So last night we were reading that story. He said, I think they just forgot God. Well, when you read, out, you read chapter 1 and 2, it, it is this kind of sense that they think they can make it on their own and their hearts are drawn away from Him. God put them there to test their hearts. Would they be faithful to Him or not? Would they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Or would they not? We know the answer, right? They failed. And just a few chapters later, we get to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Now think about that phrase. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. All they thought about all the time in their heart, in the inner soul of who they were, were things that were contrary to God. So what did God do? He brought a flood. Wiped them out except for Noah and his family. 
when he later chooses a nation, he begins to build him. He decides they want a king. And so God chooses Saul and raises Saul up as king. And Saul had promised, but he failed. He wasn't true to God. God says he's going to take it away. And it's this interesting phrase in 1 Samuel 13, 14. He says, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So God raises David up. And David was for many, many years faithful to God. He was a man after God's own heart. And then everything was going well when David spies on a rooftop a lady that was not his wife. So David fails. Solomon comes along. Many people think Solomon had a large hand in Proverbs. He was a good and wise king for many years, but in 1 Kings 11, 4, it says, When Solomon was old, his wives, which that's the first indication there are issues, right? The plural form of that word. Remember how many wives and concubines he had? A thousand total, give or take one or two. Wives and concubines together. So those thousand people had influence on him, apparently, and they turned his heart away from God. You get to the New Testament and the Lord says, the only way to change the hearts of people is to come myself. And they're pure because he was pure. And they're cleansed because Jesus cleansed them. And the New Testament looks forward to a time when eventually our hearts will be completely cleansed and pure. But it's not here yet. Not that Christ doesn't already see us as clean, but we're in that in-between time where there's still a war raging within us. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. It says in verse 23 of Proverbs 4 that we are to be keeping our hearts with all vigilance, partially because the world around us is going to attack it, but partially because that's how God tests us. Remember 2 Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless before Him. And here's the thing. Scripture makes it very clear that God does not tempt us, but He does test us. And there are times in our lives when I'm convinced that God allows things to happen as a test of our hearts, whether we're being vigilant in keeping it. Sometimes that comes in test of patience. Anybody ever had one of those? Not just, am I going to be able to wait long enough at a doctor's office, but I really want this to happen, Lord, and it's not happening. I really need an answer here, and it's not coming. I really want to know, and it's not there. And God says, wait. Sometimes it's a test of unmet expectations. God, I really thought this is what was going to be like in my family right now, and it's not there. This is what I really thought was going to happen with us, and we're not quite there. Sometimes it's test of endurance. An illness tests us day after day. A difficult child, a prodigal son tests us day after day. A, a lifetime goal is continually out there, and we have to continue to endure. Sometimes it's failure. Sometimes it's illness. God allows things to happen from time to time. He allows things to come into our life that we would not choose. Friends turn against us. Illness 
goes on for some time with no evident solution. Financial setbacks come that you didn't plan for. Difficulties with children or with parents or with in-laws or with neighbors or a thousand other things. God's seeing how the springs come out of our heart. It says keep your heart. I think it implies that we have some sort of action in order to preserve it, to protect it. It's not real complicated solutions. It's pretty simple. First of all, we take steps to not pollute it. We we try to stay away from things that we know are going to cause us to get angry or impatient or frustrated. We don't put ourselves in situations where we're going to see or hear or view or be talked to or have interaction with people that are going to negatively affect our heart. And then there's the sense of building it up. There's no way to build up your relationship with the Lord that's any better than what is called the disciplines of the Christian life or the old-fashioned just being involved with Him. As a staff, Jeff actually mentioned this in the second service on Sunday. As a staff, we're walking through a book called Authentic right now. One of the things that's convicted him, it's convicted me, it's convicted us as a staff is that especially in the position that I'm in, I can do lots of study about stuff. I can study about prayer all day long. I can study about scripture memorization all day long. I can study about subjects over and over and over again. But the point of it is not to study about prayer. The point is to pray. The thing that's going to guard my heart is not learning about prayer. It's prayer. Now, this isn't a guilt trip. I'm telling you, go home now and for the next two days, do nothing but the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting. And I mean, some of you are like, fasting? Let's, where, where did that come from, right? Prayer and fasting and scripture memory and fellowship and engagement with other believers and sharing your faith. It's not a guilt trip that way, but I'm just telling you the only way to guard your heart is to be involved in those things. It's not an easy time to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Whether you're 70 years old or you're 7, it's not easy. And the only way that you make it through is that you keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it, the springs of life flow. So here's the question. At the beginning, I had you come up with five words to describe what makes you, you. And here's what I want you to do sometime tonight, okay? I want you to do the real list that you weren't going to share with everybody here. Now, maybe yours are one and the same, and if so, then honesty ought to be on your list somewhere, all right? I want you to do the real list. And then I want you to analyze that and say, am I okay with that? I want you to be honest. And then I want you to make a list of the five words that you wish described you in relationship to your relationship with God as who you are. And then ask the question, what does it take for me to be vigilant in keeping watch to make sure that's who I become under the guidance of the Lord? All right? Make the real list somewhere tonight. Make the list you wish it was. Now, don't be two things. Don't be overly nice to yourself. 
Secondly, don't be overly critical of yourself. All right? Some of you got, I got five words and they're all terrible right now. Don't guilt yourself tonight, all right? Be honest. If you're having trouble with it, ask your spouse. But then don't get mad at them if they tell you. Right? Some of you are like, I'm going to ask my spouse, but if they tell me what I don't want to hear, you know what I'm talking about there, right? Make the list, the real list, what you wish it was, and then begin to think, how do we, how do I guard who I am? Let's pray.